Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, April 16th. The clay court portion of the professional season is well underway. We've got the Monte Carlo Masters on the ATP side. That's what we'll be focusing on today. But on the lower levels, we've also got some fun going on. We've got the French Open Wildcard Challenge for the USTA. Any American player over the next four weeks that accumulates the most points through a couple of events that we'll get into later. We'll have a shot at winning a main draw, main draw wild card into the French Open, obviously for players ranked in that 100 to 150 range while they're guaranteed a spot in qualifying to assure themselves a main draw uh, wild card is that much more important. So we will talk about that challenge. Of course, it's Tuesday, so we'll get into our Twitter Tuesday segment at the end. But joining me today to talk all things tennis, you know him as a former Denison men's tennis superstar, Cracked Rackets contributor extraordinaire, and the host of the Wednesday edition of the Mini Break podcast, James Foster McDonald. Welcome back to the Mini Break. Hey, let me just go ahead and plug listening to tomorrow as well, because you know, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm here for, really. I'm just trying to advertise myself. Oh, of course, and I hope our listeners do listen. Look, I, I have a lot of fun on Wednesdays. I get to listen to you and Stokowiak, and you know the first two episodes. I thought you guys, yeah, you you guys mentioned me a little bit too much, but you really uh, you found your legs. You guys are starting to fly. It's good stuff. Yeah, no, I think I think we mentioned you because we felt like we had to, but <laughs> now it's kind of like, yeah, not worth our time. No, I can I. I get why you say that, and I should mention I'm usually on our Monday edition of the podcast. I was not, so Max Rothman steered the ship, and he had the opportunity to give a huge congratulations to our Week 1 contest winner. That, of course, is our contest. We are saying if you, as the listeners, go like, rate, subscribe, leave a review for this mini-break podcast, leave your Twitter handle, Instagram handle, or if you're an older listener, your email address, maybe even your real address if you're one of those people who only receives the post, although, yeah, it's 2019, so... Don't you know, do that. Di- Please don't yeah, do that. Yeah, exactly. That's a little... Who do you think you are, Roger Federer? Um, Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but congratulations to our week one winner at Nico Nikos, Nikos 88 Nico F. I don't know. I'm just going to call you Nico, my man. We've got some CR gear coming your way. Westoff, if you could, cue the applause for Nico, please. I think it's just Nico Nico is 88. <laughs> Nico Nico is a I mean is he 88 years old do we have to find his no, street address like is he someone like that yeah I, I mean born in 88 it's funny that on this podcast that makes you old that does make you old sorry Nico <laughs> exactly well I don't know that, I'm I'm intrigued but my money is on Nico Nico <laughs> I hope he is Nico Nico. And so, Nico Nico, congratulations to you. We hope you enjoyed this shout out and thank you for leaving a review. We really appreciate it. I'll also ask our other listeners if you haven't done so yet, go do that now. It takes 30 seconds and you'll get, at the very least, a sweet Crack Rackets pocket tea out of this. Also, go rate, subscribe, like, review this podcast, Great Shot Podcast, Correct Interviews Podcast, What the Deuce. You look at some of the guests we've had on those on the GSP and Crack Interviews front. I know I'm selfish, but I'll mention those first. I got the chance chance to sit down with Ben Rothenberg to do a quarter poll update of the next-gen talents on the ATP side. We talked about so many players. Part one of that was released last week. Part two of that conversation coming this week. You know, we'll talk about Hubert Hurkacz in a little bit. Maybe I should have saved that yet because that would have been a perfect transition. But Ben and I talked about him, the Moonars of the world, you know, the lesser heralded ATP next-gen guys. That'll be part two, so stay on the lookout for that. Go check out our Cracked interviews coming out this week. Last week we had WTF, uh, WTF, what the f***? Uh, 
WTTCEO Carlos Silva to talk about the World Team Tennis and all the cool things going on there. This week, we'll have Jared Hiltzik. I think that episode's coming out tomorrow. Jerome Jones of First Break Academy and of Pepperdine Men's Tennis fame from the 80s uh, coming on later this week. And, of course, Chris Hallior is coming on to do College Tennis Roundup because that season is nearly complete. Jamie, I know that was a lot of plugs. I apologize for that. But we've also got some incredible tennis to talk about. You ready to get into that? No, keep plugging stuff. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just here to listen. Did I miss anything? I feel like I didn't mention Rodidi on the What the Deuce podcast. That's pretty fun. That is fun. That was good stuff, too. You just keep mentioning stuff and tell me when you need me, okay? <laughs> yeah, we've been busy on the Crack Rackets front, but that was way too A lot of stuff coming out. It's good, though. It's very yeah, good. Yeah, so go check that out. But with that being said, let's talk a little tennis. For sure. So the place I want to start and the event we're going to be doing a breakdown for on this podcast, the Monte Carlo event for the ATP, I think it's not quite a Masters 1,000. Is it a Masters 1,000? It is a Masters 1,000. Hey, great shot to me. Uh, And so obviously this being the first Masters event on clay, we're going to learn a lot about these players. One of the biggest things, even before we get into the matches, Jamie, only one American, Taylor Fritz, in the main draw of this. How weird is that? It is pretty weird. It kind of coincides with the same story from what we saw on the clay last week in terms of American play. Um, but, yeah, it's not It's not great. It's just not a good look for American tennis. Yeah, I, I would you know? agree with you. you know, it's very different. You. you know, it's not a lot of – there aren't that many in the draw. There's one in the draw, and, you know, he's there. It's not a bunch of losing. But it's still sort of ringing this, the same sort of story in of Americans not on clay. I don't know. It is weird, though. Yeah, and you just look at some. I mean, obviously John Isner would be in this event if he was not out sure. with a foot fracture. Right, a foot injury. Yeah. Query goes to Houston. It's funny. There are so many Americans right now. The the big one missing is Francis Tiafoe, who for mm-hmm. sure would have gotten into this on his ranking. Maybe Riley Opelka as well. But like the Opelkas, the Steve Johnsons, the Sam mm-hmm. Queries right now, Dennis Kudla, they have to weigh. We mentioned this French Open Wild Card Challenge. Should they go to the challenger level, lock themselves in some points? Do they try and go to these events? Maybe lose in qualifying because when it's a Masters 1000, you know, the ranking cutoff is so high. Right. It just speaks to the kind of flux and state of transition, particularly on the American men's side. Yeah, we have Isner and Query and Johnson are going to do their thing, but the Mackies, Opelkas, Fritz, Tiafas of the world still trying to figure out what schedule plays best for them. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we'll, we'll get into more of this when we talk about the actual wild card aspect itself but there there are so many american guys right now who are just sort of floating in that range right you know it's like top 100 or around there and so yeah it 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 is a little unsettling to not see more americans in the draw but of course when you bring something like an isner injury into play you know that's obviously going to knock you down yeah definitely well you know as we mentioned no american and or with the only one american not a shock no americans in monte carlo today uh we talked about that state of flux with the next gen players from america that's a theme on the atp side and to get into our first match from monte carlo the one i want to talk about a uh, number nine seed borna chorich uh, def- uh takes out hubert Hercatch, who obviously had success in indian wells and i apologize if i butchered that last name i think i'm just going to call him hubie from now on uh six four five Five seven seven five. I was chatting with you a little bit before the show, and the thing that just stands out to me, if you're playing Hubert Hurkacz, and I know Borna Chorch is exceptional, right? There's a reason he's the number nine seed, but what do you target? I mean, the closeness of the score in this match reflects the level of play because these guys were just, it was impossible to get a buy, ball by either of them. 
Yeah, you know, this this is pretty much any way you slice it, whether you're just talking about just sort of a bird's eye view of the match or if you're trying to get down into the stats. I mean, this match really could have gone either way. Um, there were so many chances throughout the match, and it was a ton of fun to watch. I think one thing that stood out to me, particularly in the first set, I thought George did a very, very good job of controlling the points but not being out of control. Because like you said, you know, he, he didn't get upset by the fact that her catch was getting a bunch of balls back. You know, he was playing smart but still very aggressive. He was controlling the points and putting them on his racket. Um, There's a lot of great just, I mean, this is why we love the clay court season, right? Just so many amazing baseline rallies, but especially with two young guys who can move. It was just a, it was just a pleasure to watch this, honestly. You talk about looking into those stats and to reveal the closeness of the match. Chorch wins 108 total points. Her catch wins 107. It literally does not get closer. I mean, unless they win the same amount of points, which I suppose does happen a ca- uh, very every so often, whatever. I'm sure it's happened before. Oh, yeah. But yeah, both of these guys had plenty of chances to break serve. You know, mm-hmm. George goes four of twelve on break points. Her catch three of seven. That one break ends up being the difference. But you look at the percentages in terms of the serving. George makes only forty seven percent of his first serves. So obviously that gives uh, her catch a lot of looks at second serves. And on clay, if you haven't gotten you know not used to that surface by now, to play that first aggressive shot to be the one dictating what direction the ball is going in is so important uh, for both of these players and for her catch look he loves to run around the backhand not that he needs to but the forehand is the shot he's more comfortable changing directions with and I think his forehand gets a little bit wristy sometimes you know he's kind of got that Nadal finish over the same shoulder follow through that it's, yeah, you see it sometimes. Uh, it's, yeah and it seems to be successful on clay I think Hubie loves the running forehand down the line for sure. a bunch of those today but if you're looking for those narrow differences you know, Chorich, uh, 71% on first serve points. Her catch, 61%. Chorich, a pretty solid 55% on second. Her catch, also solid 63%. But to me, Chorich, who's not a comfortable volleyer by, you know, any measure, he was the one when her catch was camping, you know, 10 feet behind the baseline. He snuck in a little bit more. It seems like he played so many balls that her catch just kind of threw up because he was out of position. George would let them bounce play an overhead off of it and again when the scores as thin as it is uh taking advantage uh, or uh, when the margins are as thin as they are sorry uh, that's what I meant to say you know those little things make the difference no absolutely and, and this match like I, I mean like I said earlier super close but more than that it was just an absolute roller coaster to watch right you know because as soon as one guy gets a break the other one gets it back you know George you see him get that break in the third you know he's rolling with it then he's serving for the match 5-4, gets broken. You're like, okay, now her catch has the has the momentum. Well, then George gets the break back and then wins at 7-5. So it's just, it was really all over the place, but it, it made it really entertaining to watch nonetheless. One of the funniest parts of this match is, you know, on Sunday, and I think Rothman talked about this yesterday, NBA, NHL playoffs, obviously Tiger Woods mm-hmm. doing his thing, Game of Thrones season eight premiere at night. I was kind of scrolling through Twitter getting ready, and I saw George was playing her catch, and I was like, that match is tonight? And it was just, it, like, you, you could have lost this match. I feel like people did lose the Garin, uh, Christian Garen casper Rude houston final in all of that hoopla, but this was another match that was just in, an incredible level of tennis. No, you're absolutely right. Well, hey, you know, if we're talking about the broad-based TV watcher in America, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this isn't making the list. It should in my mind and of our minds, of course, but it's not making the list compared to the the other blockbusters you mentioned with the Masters and Game of Thrones, unfortunately. 
You know, the only Hubie on there in mind is Hubie Brown, of course, the former Grizzlies coach who does the NBA playoffs play-by-play. Play. But that was, a sh- you know, not the best joke from me. We can move on to our next match. A guy whose performance through the first set really did seem like a joke. And in the ATP highlights videos of this match, they show number 13 seed Fabio Fognini on that first set set point, not even moving after he hits a return. He throws it up as high as possible. You know, Rublev has an easy forehand. Fognini doesn't move, just kind of gives up on the set. And that carried over into the second set. Andre Rublev took a 6-4-4-1 uh, lead. And then I don't know what happened because Fabio Fognini has no track record of success thus far in 2019, yet he summons this incredible performance, comes back, ends up winning the match 4-6-7-5-6-4, you know, four double faults against, or sorry, four aces against eight double faults. It goes 55 of 121 for a 45% conversion rate on the first serve. You know, Rublev has four of 17 on breakpoint chances versus Fognini's five of eight. What did Fognini do for you in this match, Jamie, to separate himself to end up coming back against an Andre Rublev, who I thought looked pretty good on the clay? I, it's, I mean, Fognini is one of those guys that it's it's so difficult to sort of just talk about normally because he doesn't operate like you would expect in a normal <laughs> sort of manner. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, so much of it is mental for this guy, but I mean, like you said, toward the end of that first set, it did not look like he was mentally in it, and I really don't know what it was. Maybe if I go back and watch the second set a little harder, I can see something click, but something something definitely got him a little more locked in, and I mean, you could tell at the very end of the match, he was incredibly into it. I mean, I don't know if you saw his celebration at the very end of the match, but he was going nuts, and so something clicked in that second set. He was down, and I don't know if it was the, the, the Italian pride. I don't know really what it was, but... I mean, he he kept doing what he did, but he was. I'd like to think he's a little smarter about it. Maybe that just looked smarter because he ended up making the slaps that he was missing in the first set. I mean, who knows, right? Like, do do you think the slaps were any smarter in the second than they were the first? Smarter? No. Were they going in? Yes. Well, like see, that, that's my that, point. It's like, so thing. is there any difference <laughs> besides, like, will... besides the end result? I guess. Sorry, I was finishing a Reese. Shout out to them. Hopefully, a future sponsor. Um, I guess for finding yeah, you like that. Um, it's just that when you're playing Andre Rublev, a younger player, I would say one of the more volatile players mentally on tour. And I'm not saying that to be, uh, you know, to be a critic of his. I'm a huge no, fan of fair. Andre Rublev's tools. I just think he still gets frustrated when the errors start compiling, when his opponent is hitting these miraculous winners. And that's what Fabio Fognini does. He takes time away from you. He's going to go for his shots. He doesn't care if it's the third ball or the 30th ball in a rally. If he wants to pull the trigger down the line, he's going to do that. And that made Andre Rublev uncomfortable. Now, some of the other things, Andre Rublev didn't do himself any favors throwing in six double faults, making only 47% of his first serves. But if you're Andre Rublev, you blow 13 break points, yeah, and you still have four breaks of serve in this match, and you lose the match. I mean, Rublev may have won one more total point in this match, 106 to Fognini's 105, but I could see the path for Rublev getting frustrated, and I, and I really think that's what happened here. Is it's just, you know, Rublev, Shapovalov, two guys who, and I don't know why I'm grouping them together. Maybe it's because we're about to talk about Shapovalov, but they don't really have plan Bs when their opponents start taking time away from them and just really start going for their shots. And I just think that's what Fognini was able to do. He messed with Rublev's rhythm a little bit more, and once Rublev was out of rhythm, I mean, Fabio's just stroking those balls down the line. Right. Well, yeah, and I mean, I'm just going to pass over 
that potential joke. You know, I'm just, <laughs> we're just gonna let it slide. I'm mature. You know, I uh, uh, appreciate that. But no, it's yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, like you said, disappointing for Rublev. Just not only given the opportunities from a from a stat line perspective, but I mean, he's up a set and a break against a guy who we've seen just sort of fizzle out of matches, right? And you, you got to think that if Rublev stays a little more solid mentally there, like you said, and, and gets rid of some of the more the ups and downs, he gets through this match. But on the other hand, I mean, Fonini's the kind of guy who he's going to play the match on his racket. And so at a certain point, if the slaps start landing, you know, you never know when the guy's going to catch fire and lock himself in. So it's so difficult. And maybe that's part of Rublev's frustration, too, is just playing a guy like this sort of, you know, throw your arms up. Um, but, I, I mean, good for Fonini for getting getting through this. Hey, good for him. Didn't he win? Yeah, he won one less point than Rublev. That's huge. Yeah. I, and I, we can move on from this match, but just one other crazy stat I see from this. You look at their first serve totals, not percentages. You know, percentage-wise, Fognini 45%, Rublev 47% seems pretty similar. But Fognini hit 121 serve, first serves in this match versus Rublev's 90. I mean, that mean, you know, that 45% extended over 31 more attempts feels like it means something. And I think it's reflected in those breakpoint opportunities, just what I keep harping back on. It seems like every point Rublev had an opportunity, either Fognini would come up with some sort of miraculous winner down the line, or a Rublev slap goes just long, you know, just wide. So, more mental than physical, I think, is the difference in this one. And if you're Andre Rublev, you know, despite losing this match, you've got to be comfortable with your level of play on the clay. There are so many correctable things from this one. Fair. No, it's definitely true. Yeah, well then, let's move on to another young guy who I think, when he's looking back on his performance in uh, in Monte Carlo, will say, man, I, I hope I'm able to capitalize on my mistakes. Dennis Shapovalov, the number 15 seed, obviously coming off of an incredible run at the Miami semifinals. You know, he's a guy who we saw make a Masters, I think, semifinal on clay last year, so... Plenty of hype coming into his first-round encounter with Jan Leonard Struff. And for Shapovalov, he wins the first set 7-5, goes down an early break in the second set, but breaks back, makes it a 3-all second set match, and then just sort of fell apart. Jan Leonard Struff taking the match 5-7-6-3-6-1. I kind of alluded to this in my Rublev thing, but Jamie, am I right in saying in this match it was Struff took time away from Shapovalov and just Shapovalov, it seemed, didn't know how to adjust? Well, it's yeah, I mean, that that definitely happened. And Struff, I mean, he's such a he's such a big hitter. I mean, you see it off the serve, you see it off the Incredible. forehand, particular, and it yeah, it is it is really amazing how he's able to take time away from people, and it, that definitely makes someone like Dennis very uncomfortable. You know, especially coming out of the hard courts where he's able to just dictate these points with the big forehand. He's able to run around and and really just impose his strokes on the other player. And Struff didn't really let him do that that much, especially as we went in and later in the match. Now. One thing I will say, at least from the mental side, is I don't think Shapovalov was out of it at the end of the second set because that first game he looked locked in. I really thought he was gonna, you know, get that break and carry it, um, but maybe that was the final breaking point for him. Is that Struff came out of it and was fine, and then just coasted kind of for the rest of the set, you know, because um, it didn't look like it, it wasn't sort of like a dejected sort of given up third set at all, at least at the beginning. Shapovalov was right there; he had a chance to get ahead early, but um, just didn't capitalize it, unfortunately, for him. You 
you used the word dejected, and I think it kind of manifested itself in a different way than you might expect in this match. For Shapovalov to hit one ace against 10 double faults, yeah, that's I think that speaks, though, to his frustration because, as you mentioned, Struff was going after everything. You know, it didn't matter. Was it a service return? Was it a Shapovalov forehand? He was f-ing trying to, you know, smash the ball down the line or smash the ball the opposite direction of wherever uh, Shapovalov was coming from. The point being, he was trying to take time away. He was trying to gun the ball. And I just think, you know, it's it's obvious you get frustrated when you're playing someone who's just going after their shots. There's nothing worse than when I'm hitting with Rothman and he's just trying to hit winners all day. And I'm like, dude, I'm trying to get a workout in. I'm trying to get a sweat. This is really frustrating me. And I feel like that's Shapovalov. He's like, come on, Struff. I'm, you know, I'm trying to get a good clay workout in. What are you doing here just slapping winners? And you look at some of the other stats, you know, for Shapovalov, converts only 43% of his second serve points going 18 of 42. You know, Shapovalov goes 3 of 9 on break points, but Struff gets 16 break points in this match converts six of them uh, I'm a broken record at this point but there's just no plan B for Shapo yeah well first first things first I think I need to talk about the fact that you and Rothman are somehow now Shapovalov and Struff so let's, let's cool it <laughs> let's cool it with those sort no, of comments I'm, I'm not Shapovalov but Rothman is definitely Jan Leonard Struff okay sure Fair enough. I'm sure he'll appreciate that. But no, I mean, I, I think it's definitely a concern. Um, and I think as we move into the clay court season, it, it's it's interesting that we see a lot of these guys who we think of as, you know, first strike, plan A, whatever you want to call it, they're going to hit the ball. We see them lose to some of these other guys. And Struff isn't exactly your typical, you know, what you would think of the clay court build who grinds people down because he's not. But you know, the people who are coming up with wins, look at the, the South Americans and look at Schwartzman. We'll talk about him in a little bit, how he's able to just wear people down. And so I think I think part of it is the clay surface is just different. But the other part is definitely specific to Shapovalov, where we've seen him not be able to sort of develop a secondary game plan. And he definitely it definitely could have cost him in this match. And regardless, none of this, this wasn't his best performance anyway. I mean, especially toward the end and there were a lot of factors here, but he was missing ground strokes. Obviously not a good serving performance by his standards. I mean, just just not that much positive. But like you said, he does need to have a, a second sort of game plan to be able to come out of matches like this. Because he, he really should be able to turn this around and, and win this match. I agree with you. Well, then final thoughts on this from the Denis Shapovalov perspective. In his career now, he falls to 10-7 and seven all-time falls. I guess he's, you know, he just turned 20 years old, so take it with a grain of salt. But 10-7 and seven all-time on, on clay during ATP matches. As I mentioned, he does have that Masters uh, semifinal, I believe, on the clay from last year. That's uh, He made the semifinals in Madrid. So we've seen him have uh, success on clay before, despite the limited sample size. Are you worried at all about him for the French open following this or is there plenty of clay for him to figure all of this out i mean there's there's plenty of time um and you know his game it's not that it's not translatable you know i i don't think that's true at all especially with how athletic he is especially with his movement um can i I also say especially the way he hits balls down the line the way he's able to miss uh miss foot his opponent that's such a valuable skill on clay absolutely no and so he has the tools there i think it's just it's a little bit of tweaking and i think it's just controlling some of the aggression that he's got um and i I really think that he could be a phenomenal clay court player i mean especially with i mean you've seen what he can do when a ball's sitting up from anywhere on the court um and so he's going to get a lot of clean looks Gonna get in a lot of you know ground stroke rallies where he can sort of dictate what's going on. You know he might not be able to hit as many outright winners, but he hits a big enough and a heavy enough ball where if he can you know keep that shot tolerance up, hit it 
do it a few times. I, I and honestly, we've seen him too move in and be able to finish off points at the net. He has great hands. I think he's going to be a good clay court player. Great hands. Eh. Okay. I mean, well, his. Let's put it this way. Smart. The ball. highlights of his hands can be really, really special. You remember that? You remember that shot against TFO? What was it? I can't remember where that was. Yeah. That was a couple no, weeks I ago, think right? Miami, right? Yeah, that was phenomenal. No, okay, so yeah, maybe not. Well, I don't know. He has good we, hands. I think compared to me, I say great hands because everyone has great hands. But I guess yeah. when you're talking tour level, he has good hands. He has good instincts to move forward, I think. Let's put it that way. And I think and he can finish off points at the net. And if you want to hear that conversation litigated more, check out my GSP with Ben Rothenberg, where we talk all about these next-gen players. But yes, I, we can leave the Shapovalov talk there. Let's let's do our last match breakdown from Monte Carlo round one. Uh, you mentioned him earlier. Diego Schwartzman knocks off number 17 seed Kyle Edmund, 4-6-6-3-6-1. I mean, this was really a tale of two uh, completely different matches. Edmund goes up 6-4, I believe 3-0. Schwartzman then rattles off 12 of the next 13 games. You, you said this when you mentioned it in passing, but just so relentless from Schwartzman. Yeah, and, and this is, I mean, it's impressive. For Diego, for sure. Definitely disappointing for Edmund. I mean, you think he's got a stranglehold on this match, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, you know, you've got some guy who's just absolutely blowing you out of the water in these last two sets, and it's like, what just happened? And, and it's so weird, too, because some of the other matches that we were talking about were so back and forth, you know, especially when we're talking about Chorich and her catch, and we're talking about Stroop and Shafovalov in those first couple of sets. And then you go to this one, and like you said, it, it very polarized, sort of, uh, I guess... I don't know, allotted like hours of tennis. <laughs> it was super weird. No. I mean, the first set versus the rest is just a completely different story. And I I don't have the splits, but I would say one of the biggest stories, Kyle Edmund's first serve just sort of abandoned him after yeah, that did. first set. Not a good serving yeah. performance. And that seems to be the theme of a lot of these guys who lost on the clay. As we mentioned earlier, and I, I just want to harp on this point because we have so much clay court tennis coming in front of us. That first ball in uh, uh, on the surface, whether it be the serve or the return itself, whichever is better, whichever player gets to be the aggressor for that point, it's that much more important because on a hard court, you can kind of dig yourself out of some scenarios. It's a little bit different when you're playing defense. On the clay, if you get misfooted, if you're chasing everything around, unless you have incredible anticipation skills, which thankfully a lot of these top ATP players do, and that's why they're on this level, you know, you're kind of fucked. Like, yeah. you just are. And it's, I just think for Kyle Edmund, despite, you know, we could talk about his backhand problems some more, but I feel like we've harped on that enough. It's hard for him to hit a ball while stretched on the clay. You know, this, making that first serve, being the aggressor, is it's why Rafa's been so dominant, right? Because when he fires yeah. in a forehand and he's dictating with his forehand what direction you're going, it's just so hard to overcome that. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting too when we start talking about the serving in this match because. I think one thing that really sort of displays Schwartzman's just, I don't know, ability to play from a neutral point in a rally is if you look at the second serve points one. So Schwartzman goes 17 of 25 for 68%. Edmund goes 20 of 44 for 45%. It's just an absolute testament to say that like Schwartzman's not rattled by the fact that he's having to drop a second serve in and starting from a, a decently neutral spot. I mean, sure, he's got the first ball in, but it's a second serve on clay and he's not a huge server. And so this just shows you how comfortable he is at a decently neutral point where he's like, you know what, this is where I play some of my best tennis, and I can I can grind you down on this clay. And that's what he did. I keep saying changing directions. I feel like it's important to explain how that's different from just hitting someone off the court. 
you know, Kyle Edmund is just going to try and hit bombs by you. He's trying to set up first forehands, unload to one side of the court, and hope you give him an easy volley for that last putaway. Diego Schwartzman, that's not how he plays. He's opening up the court for himself, short angles, slices, the variety, and I just think he wore Edmund down. Now, yeah, you mentioned the second serve points. The other thing I would mention, uh, and this will be my last point on this match, you know, Kyle Edmund, a tidy four of six on break points. A lot of times that'll get the job done, but it won't when you're facing a Diego Schwartzman who goes seven of 16 That's on break points. Yeah, he just, he was the one dictating from the first ball and Edmund doesn't have the defensive skills to kind of keep up with that over a two out of three set match. No, definitely fair. He wore him down. That's what he does on the clay. Yeah, well, I agree, and it, it's a testament to some of the tennis we saw and the te- the tennis we will be seeing throughout the rest of this clay court season. Uh, let's move on to some of the other results, and I'm just going to read through what else we saw in Monte Carlo today. If you have any comments, Jamie, feel free to stop me. Uh, in, in terms of other seeded upset, the only other seed to go down, Nikolos Bastosvili, the number 12 seed, loses to Martin Fuksovic, 7-5, uh, You look at the other seeds, Dan- Daniil Medvedev, a 1-1 one one winner over Jao Sosa. Beat down. Yeah, just uh, great times for Medvedev, especially because we haven't seen him have that much success on clay. And, you know, with all the success he's had on hardcore, it's hard to forget he's 22 years old. You know, he's still got a full years of development, you know, two to three years until we see him playing his best tennis. Um, so it will be fun to monitor. Marco Cecchinato, former French Open semifinalist, 4-0 advanced by retirement over Zoomher. David Goffin, the number 16 seed, takes out Andrasi 6-1, 6-4. In terms of the rest of the field, I'll start with the notable names. Stan Wawrinka knocks out Luca Pui 5-3. Dimitrov over Berrettini 5-4. Bautista Agut over Milman 3-6-6-1-6-1. It's kind of weird in this tournament, and you mentioned this before we started. Since there are only 16th seed, Wawrinka, Dimitrov, and RBA just feel like the most dangerous unseeded players in the draw. I know, it's crazy. No, that's, exact, that's exactly what I said. I was like... Really, we start with Puy, Vavrinka, Dimitrov, Batista, Gut, and they're not seated. That's like that's <laughs> yeah. that's difficult. I mean, so we talked about this a little bit before, but I don't know if you're making only 16 seeds, you can make a pretty compelling case to me that Grigor Dimitrov should not be one of the seeded players. No, that's fair, especially given you know recent results and you know the shoulder injury. Definitely, that's fair. If I told you, <laughs> see, the problem is. He already lost. But if I would have said, you know, Shapovalov is seated and Dimitrov is not, would you be like, yeah, given the recent form, that makes sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it, weird, but it's a sign of good things to come. Uh, moving on, Elbot knocks out Badene, 4-2. Klezan over Delbonis, 6-5. Cole Schreiber over Daniel, 1-3. Kakushkin over Shardy, 3-4. Dusan, the Deuce, Lajovic over Malik Jaziri, 4-4. Four four. Munar over Katarina, another wild card, 0-3. Paya over Jur, 6-7-6-2-6-4, and Sinego over Seppi, 7-6-6-4, which sets us up for our matches to watch tomorrow. Uh, Jamie, a, a couple of first-round matches in play tomorrow, in particular the ones I'm watching, Songa versus Fritz, FAA versus Londero, not because I think it's going to be particularly compelling, just want to watch as much FAA as possible. <laughs> Rothman put this, he put a, a text in the group chat I have with him, uh, Dalton and Westhoff, and he's like, the odds are plus 5,000 or something for FAA to win the French Open, so I'm going to put on 20 bucks. Like To me, you're just burning money there, because I don't think FAA can win it. Yeah, it's probably burning money. Yeah, but still. But hey, I mean, what's the potential payout? That's big. 
dude, that could fund cracked rackets for hopefully a year, maybe two. Um, no, that's what, that's what twenty bucks, five thousand. It's what ten thousand dollars, or no, it's a hundred thousand dollars. Damn. Okay, okay, let's go FAA. This is why gamblers get in trouble. No, and then my last first round match, I'm watching Manorino versus Nori, two guys who are just so solid. It's going to be some fun tennis. Nori, a kind of a stockier guy, it wasn't particularly fun to watch him move on that clay in Houston. But I, I think he played a Davis Cup mat last year against Ferrer on clay that he won, and it was really fun to watch him then. So I, I, another young guy, I want to see how he does with a full clay season now under his belt at the ATP level. Jamie, I did a lot of talking there. What are the second-round matches you're watching? Yeah, no, the second-round matches are going to be a ton of fun. But, you know, one thing I do want to say on the first-round matches that you touched on, I think Songa versus Fritz, I think that's going to be a really fun one. I think that'll be a sort of blockbuster for anyone who's who's – deep into the game right now. I mean, Sanga, we saw a bit of a disappointing performance, in my opinion. I mean, Benoit Paire definitely earned that title, but I really think Sanga had a chance to win that match. So you got to see, he's in pretty good form compared to what he's been in the last couple of years, so that's good. Got to see if the, the young American's up to the test against the veteran. I think that'll be a lot of fun to watch, and, and as you mentioned, it's a first career matchup, so that's that just adds even more to the play for me. But... As you asked the actual question, second round matches. I mean, you know me. I'm always I'm always biased to be watching Vavrinka. I want to see how he does against Chechenato. I mean, like you said, it's a little odd seeing the name Chechenato with a seed next to it, but Vavrinka not. Um, once again, this is another first career matchup, and I think it's a good. This is a really good test to see where Stan really is. I mean, it's not a huge, huge name. It's not a Federer. But it's someone who's been in really good form, someone we've seen have a lot of success on the clay, and it's going to be really tough for him. So hopefully he can get back to, you know, 2015 Roland Garros form. Um, but at not very. if he can't do that, at the very least, have a solid performance and, and come out on top in this. But that'll be fun. Chorch is in action again against Munar, the young guy. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Two young guys going at it. Another first career matchup. There's a lot of fun ones here. And, and Munar Chorch is, is one that we definitely expect, or at least we hope to see, for years to come, right? Yeah, I, I, that's why I'm all about it. I think Munar showed particular uh, affinity for Clay last week. For sure. He was in huge, no, he was in Marrakesh when he knocked out Zverev. God, mm-hmm. all these things. You know, Westoff, quack all of this out. I know I... But, like, it, it's kind of... Uh, all these matches now are just blending together. I mean, it's just... It's... Uh, it's hard to keep track because I'm, I'm like thinking in advance. Uh, didn't you, the one of the other matches I'm watching? Cole Schreiber was the one who knocked off Djokovic at Indian Wells, right? Yeah. And and like to me, that's not even the highlight of of tomorrow's match. I agree with you. George Munar and Chechenata Warinka, they're must watches because you know for Munar, is he real? Can he follow up last week's performance with you know he got a first round win here? I think uh, he's definitely he real on the clay. I don't know. If, I don't think there's any question there. Yeah, and and so, it, but again, just to see him match up against the highest level players again, it's a good ch- test for Chorch as well. Just got tested by Hercatch, another young guy, and again, Hercatch, Munar, two guys we saw at the Next Gen Finals last year. Testament to the the launching pad that sort of event is now that we're seeing these guys have this sort of success in 2019. Yeah, tomorrow's gonna be a fun day of tennis for sure. Absolutely.
All right, well then, there are two more things I want to do before I let you go. We have alluded to it earlier, and we will be talking about it in more depth throughout the next month, so we can just get into it superficially today. The French Open Wildcard Challenge is officially underway. It actually began last week. For people who don't know what that is, the USTA, uh, French Tennis Association, I don't think that's what it's called, but the, the Australian Tennis Association as well, all form a partnership where they give recipro- reciprocal wildcards to each other's majors. You know, the Australian Open gives out two wild cards to the U.S. Uh, organization and the French. You're allowed to give a wild card to that player, and they get the main draw wild card into said Grand Slam. The way these events work, the way the USTA does it for the Americans, over the course of four weeks, players have the opportunity to play uh, tournaments at the tour level as well as the challenger level. The player that accumulates the most points in three out of the four weeks uh, wins the wild card. Now, again, to put it in perspective, uh, we had Marrakesh and Houston last week. Those were ATP tour opportunities for players to get points. We saw guys, you know, Sandgrins, Fratangelos, Rubens get wild cards into that event, and unfortunately, they weren't able to get any points for themselves. But a guy like Ryan Harrison, who got a first round win last week, he'll cash those 20 points and hold on to them dearly because every point is that much more important. You look this week, we've got the first of the American Clay Challengers in Sarasota. We're actually going to be bringing on Mike Cation, I think tomorrow to talk about that event. So stay tuned for that. But we have 20 Americans in action there. Tennis Sandgren, Bradley Klon, Fertangelo, Rubin, Giron, Kruger, Paul, Kwiatkowski, Brooksby, Hiltzik, Nguyen, Ryan Shane, Altamar, Aragoni. My point being, uh, uh, Sebastian Corda, Ulysses Blanche, players of all ages, all backgrounds coming together because they know how valuable this opportunity is. You know, as I mentioned, uh, 20 Americans in Sarasota. There are five competing in a challenger in Mexico this week. Kevin King, Evan King, Ernesto Estebego, uh, Emilio Nava. I don't know why I have five. That's four. Uh, so, hey, great shot to me. Uh, and then yeah. Taylor Fritz in Monte Carlo. Um, so all these events going on, and there will be a challengers throughout the next uh, couple weeks as well. I believe Tallahassee is next week, and then we've got Savannah after that. We've also got challengers in Bordeaux, France, in the Czech Republic. Uh, in Bo- and we've got the 250 in Budapest, Barcelona, Monte Carlo. Obviously, there's going to be a ton of turna- uh, tournaments played, a lot of chances for a lot of guys to earn a lot of points. But, you know, you look at this field specifically, Jamie, and in terms of direct entries, it looks like Isner, Tiafo, Opelka, Steve Johnson, Mackey, Fritz, Query, uh, seven Americans should be assured of entry into the uh, French Open main draw. But there are a lot of other players who are on that cusp of like the 85 to 150 range where anything is possible. So my question to you, your favorite to win the 2019 Roland Garros wildcard challenge is... Well, yeah, I mean, the first, you, you, the way you've got it sectioned off, I think my, the one I've got to go with is Harrison in the, in the sort of quote on the cusp one right now. I mean, I think mm-hmm. he, he's just outside of the top 100. We saw him, I mean, compared to the, the other Americans with the exception of Query, he had phenomenal success on the clay because all the rest of them lost. So like you said, he's going to cash those points and hold on to him dearly. But I think he's got a good, he's got a, He's got a game that's well suited for the clay, and so he can move well. And I think just depending on the draw for him, especially, he has the opportunities to to grab points from any of the events he that he plays in. So in terms of on the cusp people, I think that I'm going with him. If I pick someone who's out of your, you know, on the cusp <laughs> list, I would like to pick Jack Sock, but he's not back. I mean, <laughs> guy was eight in the world. He, he it would have to be him. You would think anyway. But um, I, I think you 
you might say Ruben has the edge. He won that last year in 2018, I believe. He got that wild card. Um, and so he's inside the top 150 now. And, you know, we've seen his movement and his play on the clay. It's, um, you know, it's, it's somewhat – it just looks comfortable for him. And I think that he has the potential to, to do a lot of damage on this surface. And so, you know, if it's not someone like Harrison or if some of those guys that are, quote, on the cusp end up getting in to the, to the Roland Garris main draw without the, the wild card, potentially it goes to him. But – I would say if I had to put money on it right now, I'd go with Harrison maybe. I don't think that's a bad bet, especially given how much experience he's had uh, just at the major level and just compared to some of the other guys he's competing with. A guy I would point out, Tennis Sandgren right now, he's on the cusp. Yeah. I think he's ranked number 111, the number two seed in Sarasota this week. You know, By virtue of his ranking, he's going to have the chance to get into ATP 250s as well as the challengers he wants to get into. And I think for guys ranked in the top 150, because you know, it's, so, it's so rare, but it seems to be happening more and more that the cutoff line to get into a challenger is around 150. But it is around 200, 250, so if the guys in that 150 who are going to get guaranteed acceptance into all of the events they played, it's that much cru- more, cru- uh, or they just have that much better of a chance, I suppose, to succeed. Sure. So Sandgren, I like Fertangelo. Kruger won in Dallas, but he's got a tough draw in Sarasota this week. I'd love to see Tommy Paul come back from injury and have some success here. Well, He'll you know I would, too. Yeah, he'll get in by virtue of his protection. Especially, ranking, I mean, he's I super good on the clay, anyway. So exactly. we know that. We know he's that a, he, yeah, yeah, he's the number fifteen seed this weekend. Uh, he lost in three sets, I believe, in Houston qualifying last week. That was his first match back. But I mean, you look at some of the guys who have won this in the past. You mentioned Ruben in twenty seventeen. That's why I have it in my head. Tennis Sandgren won it. Sixteen Bjorn Fortangelo. Fifteen Francis Tiafo. I'd be honestly fine with any of those guys winning it this year. Now, Tiafa won't need it. Yeah, he but, won't um, need it, but right. I, I, see, I, I see where you are. Yeah, so the, those would be my favorites. But as I mentioned, we have Mike Cation coming on. Um, and there's so much time between now and then. So any final thoughts on that topic? No, just hoping to see some American success on the clay. You know, honestly, at this point, I don't care who it goes to. Just give it to somebody who's actually going to have some success and do something with it, right? Yeah, you look at the last few years, uh, Noah Rubin, Tennis Angren, Francis Tiafo, all lost first round. Actually, yeah. in the seven years that they have done this event, so it started in 2012, the only two players to win their first round matches, Bjorn Fertangelo in 2016, Brian Baker in 2012. And I should say that's of the men now. Taylor Townsend made a third round in 2014. Shelby Rogers, Melanie Uden, second rounds. Taylor Townsend also. Taylor Townsend's won this three times on the women's side. That's crazy. Well, yeah, she's pretty good. Yeah, and look, if I'm having an early favorite to win it this year, if she's going to need a main card uh, and a wild card, I guess she's my favorite for the women's side oh, as yeah. well. Give me, I'll put that name in too, for sure. <laughs> yeah, totally down. Well, then, given that it's a Tuesday, given that I want to let you off the phone because you asked if we could keep it short today and we're already around the 42-minute mark, Brutal. we want to do one last thing. It is the thing we do every Tuesday. West off, if you could, cue the Twitter Tuesday sound effect, please. So, Jamie, I'm not going to lie, with all of the hoopla that was this weekend, uh, it was tough to keep track of everything going on. It seems like Game of Thrones permeated into all aspects of life, tennis fans, uh, golf fans, whatever. It also seems like Tiger coverage, you know, there's a lot of intersection between golf and tennis. So a lot of tennis Twitter personalities were talking Tiger Woods this weekend. But still, there's plenty of fun stuff to talk about. I'll give you the first crack at it. Where do you want to start? Uh, Well... I don't know. So my main, obviously, I'm looking at your list here, and you've got like 500 things written down. (laughs) 
for me, the two big ones were uh, the Ohio State McNally hook because it was pretty blatant. Um, however, the toughest one for me to watch was not that, but actually all of the stuff with the Sarah Arani yips while serving. That's been <laughs> tweeted out so much. And God, I feel it's like I'm laughing because the misses are so bad, but I feel very bad. I mean, look, Sarah Arani, she was up to what, five in the world? She got to the final of a Grand Slam. And during that last tournament, she was averaging 18 double faults a match. And at one point, someone calculated it was averaging about 15 double faults a match for 2019. Yeah, I mean, there is something seriously bad going on there. And it is very difficult to watch. I mean, the, the first clip of it I saw before I really got into looking at it, first serve landed about three feet in front of the net. Second serve landed in the doubles alley right by the baseline. I mean it's it is painful to watch and you know of course now she's thrown in the underhand serves as well um and it's i mean it's been all over twitter but man it is tough but like it's sort of like the thing that you can't take your eye off of but you like really want to but you just have to keep watching the next clip because you're like oh god how bad did she miss the next one it's oh it's tough and she's still somehow winning matches like that's (laughs) also the insane part so is it is it more painful to be a fan of Sarah Ronnie watching her serve like that, or more painful to be someone who's on the other side of the net and the opponent who's lo- losing to an opponent who's serving underhand? It's I mean it's got to be the opponent, right? I mean <laughs> because I mean I've seen this. I mean these people are just missing returns. I mean missing returns off of serves that are coming in at like forty two miles an hour underhand. I mean it, it is insane. And I mean, you see, these people are taking returns closer to the service line than the baseline, and still missing them. I'm like, oh my god, what is, what are you guys doing? Um, it's, it's crazy. I mean, honestly, I applaud Sarah Roney for even being able to pull out some of these matches while she's serving like this. Um, but yeah, it, bottom line, no matter what side you're on here, it's, it's tough. So I didn't give you time to prepare for this, so I understand if it's not your best answer. But a couple weeks ago when I last had you on, we did a hypothetical where you're Kyrgios' coach and you were asking him some questions before the match. If you're a Ronnie's coach and she calls you in and she's coming to you and she's saying, you know, Jamie, I just I can't find the serve today. I, I think I'm going to go underhand. What's your response to her? Um. Wow. Can, I mean, can I can I really just say anything here? Anything, I and mean, if you swear, yeah. I'll quack it. Oh, that's fair. Um, no, I never swear. You know, I'm a good I'm a good <laughs> Christian man. Um, no, I mean, truthfully, I would just be like, I would ask her. I would I would seriously be like, do you think that's the best chance you have to make a serve? Like right now, do you think if gun to your head, you have to make a serve? Do you have a better shot of of hitting it in? <laughs> with some chance of winning the point underhanded <laughs> or is it going to be a normal serve and bottom line right now it's looking like her answer is 100% of the time going to be like I can't make a serve and I'm never going to win the point because I'll miss it so I might as well hit underhand and so it's like okay if you tr- truthfully don't think you can win a point hitting a normal serve then yes hit it underhanded I don't care but I mean I think if I get on the practice court we're going to be working on the serve and we're going to be we're going to be trying some wild because whatever is going on is not working. They've been messing with the toss, they've been messing with where she actually starts her motion. Right now it looks like she's sort of a like an I don't know, like a recreational 12-year-old like she's resting the frame on her right shoulder before she starts. Like it's oh, it's tough. But no, bottom line if she comes to me and says, "Can I hit underhanded?" I'm like, 
well, yes, but you better actually win some points with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's winning matches, so whatever she's doing is clearly we're are kind of working. I guess. Kind but of. I I was thinking back in. You would think Nick Anderson, who played for the Orlando Magic, missed a couple free throws against the Rockets in like 95, 96, and he had the yips. That's a really famous case of that. Uh, I mean, you see golf players all the time when they lose confidence in their driver, it goes away. They're hitting three woods. But in tennis, I'm trying to think who has seriously had the yips. Uh, you know, they just refuse to do things. I guess there are plenty of players who refuse to come to the net when they should. Uh, but I just I can't think of another case like this around. No, that's not. That, yeah, that's that's not the same. This is something. This is something spectacular. And I and and what's crazy too is like I think you see some players have it occasionally. Like they just have a really bad serving match or something where they just can't get their toss under control. This is this has been sustained for a while now. And I mean, she is averaging this many double faults. And I mean, I feel bad. I hope she gets it back. But like I, I don't even know what to do there. No, for sure. Um, yeah. Well. As to uh, the other point you made on the McNally hook, uh, I'm not going to say anything now, but I will say we will talk about that, and I will give my full opinion on our GSP, which I think is being released Wednesday. Uh, it'll be me, Chris Halliors, and a new third guest, a new member of our Cracked Rackets team. A little teaser there, so be sure to check that out. But yes, I saw the video, and yes, I have thoughts. Um, but I, I want to do a couple more. You mentioned my list is huge, uh, so I'll just pick the highlights. The one I want to start with, did you see the the photo? And if you haven't, Jamie, and any of our listeners, if you haven't, go to Stefano Tsitsipas' Twitter handle. He's not the only one, but he's a guy who I know for sure sent this out. It's a photo of a bunch of the top seeds in Montecarlo oh, yeah, uh, with the prince there, and they're all in suits. And I have a laundry list of thoughts. And just so yeah, you, you really guys do. know, yeah, the participants: uh, Djokovic, Nadal, Nishikori, Gofen, the Zverev's team, FAA, Tsitsipas, Chilich, and Medvedev. Let's start with your boy Nishikori, Jamie. The guy's got to get a, a <laughs> find a tailor though. I mean, it's not hard to find someone who can show you pants that fit. Maybe you just don't understand style, man. Okay, right. have you ever thought about that? Here's the thing: I, from like junior year of high school till freshman year of college, I was all about showing ankle. You know, I was going through different growth spurts and just nothing ever ended up fitting correctly. So I get it. But he's twenty, like what, twenty eight now? Like he's got to know socks. Probably not the best look. Hey man, you know what? I respect it, and he's in a place in his life that I will never even come close to. <laughs> so yeah, it's not really my place at this point. Well, I guess that's fair. And you you mentioned some, but no, you're just... right. It's ridiculous. He needs to. Yeah. Let, let's be real here. Yeah, that yeah. needs to be fixed. But you mentioned a guy riding a high. Dominic Team is probably the biggest loser of this photo because not only is he the only guy in the photo not wearing a button down, which is like a cardinal sin. I mean, my guy, bring a button down. You know you're taking a photo with all these players. You know, come prepared. But the other thing, I'm pretty sure he's wearing gym shoes. Yeah, it's a, it's a little Ellen DeGeneres. Um, <laughs> it's it's not a good look. And just the keeping the single button, I mean, it looks like a bunch of them are doing it, but it's, it's no, he does not look good in this. It, it looks like he's very ill-prepared, and someone's like, yo, dude, we're taking a picture. Someone <laughs> found him like an off-colored blazer and was like, yo, put this on right now. And he's like, okay. That's seriously what it looks like. I mean, 
the Zverevs look pretty sharp, and then oh. right next to him are team, and you're like, wow, that's 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 tough scene for Dami there. Look, I, I went way too in-depth into this, but the only guys who look like they belong, Rafa, Alex Zverev, and Medvedev, all look like they have done photos like this before, and they came prepared. The rest of the crew, I mean, Djokovic has the baby blue pants that are just like, what are you doing, Novak? You're number one player in the world. I want, I, I the, the light blue, it was just a bold choice. I mean, I'm reading too much into this. Wear whatever the f*** you want, Novak. You're, again, in a way better place than I am. Uh, but, like, come on. You're our player representative. Represent us. Fair. But, hey, Goffin looks pretty sharp. I mean, he's got the tie, but he looks good at least. He looks presentable. He I looks feel like ready. he's got he's got to give the tie, because he's the only one with a tie. Give that to team and be like, look, Dominic, you're you're lacking in a lot of other or things Or why right not now. just take it off, you know? <laughs> that's, another, that's another thought, too. He could have just taken it off. No, I agree. I mean, and then my last thought, I know I've looked way too deep into this, but you mentioned showing chest. Rafa and Misha Zverev, they, they went that extra button low. They look quite confident. Yeah, that's good stuff. They're like, yo, give me, maybe, maybe they probably, I bet you they had like one or two more buttons undone. And then the guy taking the picture was like, hey, look, you know, <laughs> we got to keep it classy here. This is, this is, this is going to be shown to families. If anyone's allowed to show nipples in front of royalty, it's Raphael Nadal. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I All can't right. argue with that one. Yeah, no, I I think I, I agree. Well, then my last Twitter Tuesday thing, and I just want to give props to the entire uh, Houston ATP event because they had wonderful social media going up on the ATP site, on their own Twitter site, by Blair Henley, who did a fantastic job covering the event. Some of the cool things they did, Cam Norrie explaining all of the uh, Texas college cheering signs. Actually, Westoff, if you could play that clip for us now. Hi, guys. I'm Cam Norrie. Nice to be back here in uh, Houston. Um, I previously went to TCU, but I'm going to show you guys everything I learned about uh, college sports here in Texas. This one's the most important one. Um, this is the TCU, it's Go Frogs. At AM, they do the gigging, is that right? Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't recommend that one at all. No. Uh, th- this one's the Texas Longhorns. I think this is one, this one is the, definitely the worst one of all. The, the Sikkim Bears, Sikkim Bears, horrible. TCU's number one rival, just not a fan of it at all. Since we're here in Houston, um, this is the Rice Owls. U of H is uh, Go Cougs. Oh, sorry, this one, here it is, Go Cougs. Sorry, this one, Go Cougs. This is the SMU sign, relaxed peace sign, I've heard. Takes us to the Raiders. TC, we called it Raider Rash. I uh, hope you guys learned something today. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple here in Texas, but uh, Go Frogs. Remember that one, Go Frogs. They did that. They had uh, an interview with Sam Query where he explained why he's extremely cleanly and he he makes a great husband. And then my personal favorite, something that had to happen, they had Riley Opelka cutting off Taylor Fritz's man bun. I mean, that's must-watch content for me. It was time. <laughs> it was time. You, you think he wins against uh, Sanga tomorrow now that he's man bunless? Or was that – well, clearly it wasn't, you know, the magic potion for him to win. I – yeah, let's say yeah. The man bun was the problem. Now he's going to win. He'll win Oh and O. How about that? I think it's hard to serve when you've got a man bun flopping in your eyes. So It's got to uh, be I'm, distracting, right? Yeah, I mean, Songa used to have big hair. He's gone shaved head. Dude, uh, he did Federer, have big hair there for a yeah, minute. I know. F- Federer didn't get good till he chopped the ponytail off. I mean, that's not okay. true. He was good. He didn't get great. Mm, he didn't uh, get great. He didn't okay. become the goat until he cut off that ponytail. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then my final thought to you, Hyun Chung, blonde hair, not a good look. Yeah, um, man. It's like the Benoit pair blonde hair, but somehow worse. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but like two months later. It's like, come on, man. Get with the times. But we 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 can leave things there. Any final thoughts, Jamie? No, but I'm looking forward to next Twitter Tuesday because this one was this one was pretty damn entertaining. So we'll see if next Tuesday can top it. It's one of my favorite segments. I really am happy. We. I mean, I'm priding myself here, I suppose, because I'm a part of it. Yeah, but it's really. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, tennis Twitter is a fascinating place. You can find all sorts of personalities. You want haters, they're there. You want funny people, they're there. You want cringeworthy things. Look up Caroline Wozniacki's bachelorette party videos. Brutal. I mean, it, yeah, it's got it all. But then, all right, thank you, as always, Jamie, uh, for coming out and doing this. A huge shout-out to our super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westhoff, who have a f***ing editing job to do, as always, particularly because we hit about the 55-minute mark. And that's my fault because I didn't get to come on yesterday's show. But one last time for my incredible co-host, James Foster McDonald, who will be steering the ship tomorrow, for our incredible super producers, Max Flinger and Daniel Westhoff, and from our entire team at Cracker Raggets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we say to our fans? Nah, it's a break. And I love it, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.